Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I feel particularly lucky today because I get to start a brand new week here on Political Rewind with just a terrific panel of analysts who I'm very excited to talk to in just a couple of minutes. Uh, There are a number of debates going on today and throughout tomorrow. You can look at a a list of all of them by going to gpb.org because uh, we Uh, broadcast the debates that are produced actually by the Atlanta Press Club. But some important ones up ahead, lieutenant governor candidates on both sides of the aisle, secretary of state candidates and and others will be happening today and tomorrow. Let's get right to this uh, panel of ours today. Patricia Murphy joins me on Monday. She, of course, is the political reporter and columnist, political insider columnist for the AJC. You read her on Wednesdays and Sundays when she publishes her column, but she also oversees the jolt at AJC.com every day. And Patricia, you are joining us as any good reporter uh, would do with a camp- with a, an election looming from your car waiting to cover a, some campaign, campaign events, yes? <laughs> yes, I am. I'm in the Olive Garden parking lot in Rome, Georgia, but it's not open yet. <laughs> but yes, I'll be spending the day on the campaign trail in the 14th District, which I am really looking forward to. <laughs> Yeah, I'll bet you are. Well, thank you for uh, being here today. It's great to have uh, you uh, with us. Uh, Andre Gillespie is back with us today, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory. Andre, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm terrific. Uh, After a day of watching debates yesterday, uh, as you did as well, I'm looking forward to talking about all of them. Alan Abramowitz, your colleague from Emory University, is also here. Uh, Alan, you are now an emeritus professor of political science at Emory University. I think you're down to having to teach one course each semester. You'd finished one, I think, just now, and you teach another in the fall, right? Right, and I I don't even have to do that. Voluntary. <laughs> they don't force me to teach a class. Wow, <laughs> it's, I it's like something that. That's a, it's something that's enjoyable to do, though. I get to uh, well, occasionally interact with my, my colleagues. Um, and we're glad you continue uh, to be a, a panelist on Political Rewind. Kurt Young, who is the chairman of the Political Science Department at Clark Atlanta University and also teaches political science there. Kurt, I get to see you on WebEx Uh, because we all look at each other, even though our listeners can't see you. You are looking especially cool today. uh, (laughs) (laughs) You've got a great, you've got a Kangol, it looks like a Kangol to me, which I think of as a Sam Jackson hat. Uh, You're looking great, Kurt. Well, well, Bill, if you can look at me and tell that I'm wearing a Kangol, I mean, you're you're pretty cool, too. (laughs) Well, thank thank you so much. Glad to be here. 
Uh, let's get right to it. Um, Patricia, let's talk, start, uh, first of all, let's talk about early voting just for a couple of minutes, because I think it's important that people understand uh, that voting does begin today. Uh, Patricia, we know that SB 202 was enormously controversial. Many people feel that any number of the provisions in that measure will could suppress the vote, but we also should say there are some things about the bill that people should be aware of that, in fact, are good uh, changes in the law. For instance, um, it is now uh, a law that early voting hours have to be set from between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., um, and counties can offer up to 12 hours of a daily early voting from 7 in the morning to 7 at night. It used to be just had to have uh, early voting during business hours, which were never uh, defined. We also now have two Saturdays of early voting and can have potentially, depending on the county, two Sunday days. So there are some things about it that if people want to vote early, they can take advantage of those things in a positive way. Yes, Patricia? Uh, yes. And when Republicans defend SB 202, they will talk a lot about these changes. I think probably the most important is that um, requirement to do nine to, nine to five voting. That was not uh, defined. And so in some smaller counties, it would be maybe 10 to three. You know, it didn't have to be anything in particular. And so this gives uh, voters um, predictability, um, but it does not preclude states, I'm sorry, counties from doing, um, you know, seven to seven, which is what we see in most larger metro counties. Um, another big difference, um, which is a major criticism from Democrats, um, is that uh, drop boxes will be inside mm -hmm. polling places and available only during polling hours. And that's a big change from 2020 when people could drop off their, their ballot um, outside of drop boxes, uh, in some cases, 24 hours a day. Those were locked. They were under all under video surveillance. There was a lot of misinformation information about the security of those drop boxes. But if anybody voted with the drop box last time around, they will see some changes this time around. And so um, we have a full write-up from Mark Nisi about the changes that voters will physically see and feel during early voting at theajc.com. So they can check that out as well. Yeah. Yeah, and that's he's done a good job with that. We should also point out, Kurt, that voters have to be aware of other changes that may not be so beneficial to them. Uh, you have to require a uh, an absentee ballot uh, no later than 11 days uh, before Election Day, uh, May 24th. So you've got to push forward if you're going to uh, get an absentee ballot. Uh, Patricia already mentioned drop boxes are limited. Not only are they inside polling places now, but there are fewer uh, drop boxes around the state. So all of this is to say that as voters start looking to casting ballots, they really need to be aware of what these changes might mean. The other thing I'll point out, Kurt, is you now have to have a paper uh, document with your absentee ballot request, which means you have to have access to a printer uh, to print out that paper, Kurt. Yeah, and all of these, all of these new challenges are items that, as Patricia mentioned, are being targeted, mentioned, uh, uh, emphasized by um, the Democrats as to the shortcomings of SB 202, right? Um, and then, when you look at it from that perspective, you see how critical it becomes attached to the Democratic effort to get out all of the votes as possible, right? And so you're going to find, uh, uh, starting now, but I think it'll ramp up as we get closer and closer to the general, 
you'll, you'll begin to find much more uh, emphasis on connecting these types of issues to the get out the vote strategy. One of the things that I think is, is actually interesting for us to be able to look at is that while this is a test of what SB 202 is, is going to do, uh, we really have to look ahead to uh, the November election. The types of people who are going to be participating in this election are people who are probably well acquainted with the election system. And even though they have to get used to new rules, right, are probably in a really strong position to be able to um, to be able to navigate the new rules because these are high propensity voters who show up usually in primary elections. So I think we need to be careful about making some apples to oranges comparisons about trying to compare what primary election mm. results are going to look like compared to, you know, what, uh, you know, would have happened in November 20 or 21 versus what we could see happen in the fall. Alan, yeah, I think I think that's a, a very important point. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind with the turnout in the primary is that we're likely to see a much larger turnout for the Republican primary than for the Democratic primary, simply because the Republicans have this uh, contested primary for governor. And uh, at the top of the ticket, the Democratic contest, the high-profile contests are uncontested, so that you know, Stacey Abrams is not being challenged. Uh, Raphael Warnock is not being challenged. So there are contests further down the ballot, but I don't think they're going to attract uh, a, a nearly as great a turnout. So uh, my, my prediction is that we're going to see a very disproportionate Republican turnout, but not, not necessarily because of SB 202, but because simply of, of the fact that the Republicans have these high-profile primary contests going on, the Democrats don't. Uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, Alan, uh, but while we're talking about turnout, you have maintained on this show and elsewhere for some time now that while SB 202, w while there may be some reasons to believe that uh, the, the measures w could suppress some of the potentially Democratic vote, you've said for a long time you believe that, in fact, people could end up being more energized. Now, again, as Andre and you point out, not necessarily in the primary where right. you don't have top of the ballot uh, uh, contest, but down the road, you still think it might work to the favor of Democrats who are going to be much more energized to vote. Do you still feel in that way? Well, I think what you're going to see is that when we get to the general election, that there's going to be a... Uh, much more of an organized effort to mobilize Democratic voters using SB 202 as one of the uh, issues. Um, because what happens normally when, if, you, if, if, if a political party's message to a group of voters is, we really would prefer that you don't vote, uh, please stay at home, um, they don't necessarily respond by accepting that and saying, yeah, you know, it's going to be too difficult. We're just not going to bother voting. Um, that you'll see a redoubled effort, I think, to get people out to vote. And I don't think things like putting drop boxes inside of precincts instead of outside uh, or even changing the early voting uh, hours is going to have much impact uh, on that. The research on early voting in particular tends to show that it, it has no effect on turnout anyway, that the availability of early voting and the number of days of early voting don't increase turnout. It makes it easier to vote. It's popular but it doesn't actually increase turnout. Okay, um, let's move on and talk a little bit about the debates. By the way, as Patricia pointed out, Mark Nisi at AJC.com has information about voting. We do, too, at gpb.org. Stephen Fowler's written 
uh, piece, which will give you information that you need. And, and Natalie Mendenhall is going to tweet out uh, some uh, links that you can use to the Secretary of State's office as early voting gets underway. Uh, Patricia, so we saw yesterday uh, another debate for governor, different this time because it wasn't just David Perdue uh, versus Brian Kemp. It included all of the candidates for governor. And in some way, that was kind of the cooling saucer <laughs> in otherwise very hot cups of debate tea before when it was Kemp and Purdue uh, uh, just going against each other. Yes, that's exactly right. Yes, there were five candidates on stage instead of two. And so, you know, it's like it kind of makes awkward one on one appearances less awkward. If you bring a friend along, there were five candidates on stage. So the Kemp Purdue factor was significantly um, diluted. And also, I found it fascinating that the panelists asking the questions did not ask about um, the 2020 election. I think that was important because it put on the table a number of other issues that, um, you know, from the economy to the Rivian deal out in uh, east of Atlanta um, to a number of other issues that I think Republican voters care about. Um, while previous debates had specifically asked about the 2020 elections, this debate did not. And so it really changed the tenor of that race. And then also, I think for Governor Kemp, he is happy to give some of the spotlight away to others because he is doing uh, very well in the polls right now. Um, Candace Taylor is a woman who um, Republican activists are very familiar with. I think she had um, a number of lines that the far right conservative activists will appreciate, um, maybe to the detriment of David Perdue, but we will see what happens and how this all shakes out. But it was a very different dynamic last night, I thought, definitely, for that reason. I, I think one of the questions, um, Kurt, and then I'd love to get everybody else in on this, is uh, we, we do know that the polling suggests that uh, David Perdue and Kemp are the only two who have a real shot at uh, winning this thing. And Kemp is positioned maybe to win without a runoff. Uh, here's the question I want to start with on that, Kurt. To, has Kemp done enough in, in this final debate as we look forward to the election moving forward to the 24th? Is he, did he do enough yesterday to fight off David Perdue's challenge? Or did the other candidates, in fact, put themselves in a position, as perhaps Patricia suggests, maybe, uh, to force this thing into a runoff? Well, you know, there are no guarantees. Uh, his campaign would certainly like to position itself as such. But, you know, we, we've been talking about this for some time, Bill. Um, we, have to, uh, we have to be a bit more cautious these days in reading these polls. And so while the conventional wisdom is that he seems to be poised to glide into the general, uh, um, we don't know for certain, especially when we, we, we just suppose the current debate around or as they're connected to some of the national uh, issues around um, the uh, place of Georgia in the uh, upcoming elections, right? Um, and when we think about it, by Trump playing such a prominent role in these types of uh, uh, primaries, um, you, you may find that individuals may shift uh, based upon the Trump endorsement. Now, of course, this is a signal as to the strength of Trump's endorsement. And I think the state of Georgia, as well as a number of states, will tell us a bit more about uh, the power of the Trump endorsement. But I, I do believe that there's something uh, uh, lingering out there that we're not quite sure about in terms of uh, whether or not uh, Kemp can glide forward. Um, and, and I think that Purdue and others, others who are gaining Trump endorsements are hoping 
uh, that that endorsement is going to carry today. Um, and, and the last one I'll make, Bill, uh, is that this may, this is sort of personal for Trump. Um, and I suspect that he is, and I think we've already received reports that he is going to wrap up his support for um, for um, Purdue uh, as he uh, lashes out even more intensely in, uh, towards uh, Kemp. Alan, we do know that Trump is having a tele-rally for Purdue tonight. Talked about yeah. maybe coming back one more time in person. On the other hand, yeah. he gave the New York Times an interview in which he once again hedged his book bets about David Purdue uh, yeah. and, and suggested maybe Purdue can't win this thing. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, I, th- I think that's a good example of Trump being Trump. Um, so he wants to have it both ways. You know, he'd like to claim credit for uh, the success of any of his candidates that he's endorsed. And we don't forget, they big, big primary coming up in Ohio um, tomorrow also, where uh, we'll see another test of, of Trump's influence on the Republican Party, maybe a more clear-cut test because there's no incumbent running in that, in that Senate primary there. Um, and, 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 and I think it's certainly, as Kirk said, you know, we need to be careful about, about taking, reading too much into these polls. Um, especially in a primary. So polls in primary elections um, are notoriously inaccurate, and, and, and or at least, if not inaccurate, at least there can be big shifts uh, in a relatively short period of time. That's something you don't generally see in a general election uh, where voters are tied to their party. Uh, but in a primary election where voters are choosing within the same party, um, you, you can get pretty big swings. In this case, however, I would say because Kemp is a, an incumbent, governor, uh, you know, very well known um, that that's less likely. Um, we're less likely to see big, big shifts over the last few weeks. And, and I think he's in a pretty strong position right now to avoid a runoff. Andra? So, you know, I, you know, I, I agree that, that Kemp is in a strong position, but he's not so far over the hump that statistically like 49 or 50 isn't part of what the sort of range of possible kind of true values are. Um, you know, while I can't say that one of the sort of uh, the third, fourth or the fifth candidate isn't going to be spoiler, I also don't think that they really have a shot of winning. In their own heads, they do. Candace Taylor talked about that a lot, but like she's not going to win. Um, and one of the things that was actually really interesting was to see in some ways how they position themselves relative to Kemp and Purdue um, in ways that were interesting. So Taylor played a lot to conspiracy theories. So, uh, you know, she, you know, mentioned pedophilia, sort of a a clear QAnon kind of reference. She said that Kemp was, you know, being controlled by the Communist Party of China um, because of his support of, of Rivian. Like, these are things that don't make you particularly marketable as a general election candidate. And even with a very conservative Republican electorate in Georgia, I'm not sure that that's actually going to appeal to the median uh, Republican voter in, in, in the state. So, and it was also interesting to see Catherine Davis, uh, somebody who has run for office before, who is basically running as a pro-life activist, um, African-American woman, not say that she wouldn't necessarily support whoever the Republican nominee mm-hmm. is, that she'd have to weigh her conscience. And so, I mean, it was, it was so to see the contrast was actually really interesting. On the other hand, I don't think it changes the overall dynamic that this is a race between Kemp and Purdue that Kemp is, is, is leading in. Um, you know, Patricia, before we move on, I, I, I did think, Andrew referred to it, Candace Taylor, who I have not been exposed to much, um, uh, because her campaign has not gotten a great deal of attention, although she's 
third kind of in the polling, although the numbers are very insignificant. Uh, she called President Biden a pedophile. As Andra points out, she told said that Brian Kemp was in bed basically with the Communist Party of China. And, you know, despite the fact that we have seen a lot of this right-wing rhetoric expressed more and more often, there was something still startling on the stage of a gubernatorial debate to hear that kind of language. Yes. When she said that to Joe Biden, I myself, not to Joe Biden, but about Joe Biden, I was shocked um, because I actually have not heard anybody else on a debate stage or on the national stage say that about Joe Biden in particular. Um, But we do know that this is a part of the extreme wing of the Republican Party here in Georgia. Um, I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene is a big piece of that. Um, Andrew Clyde is a piece of that. There is an audience for the most extreme, um, most histrionic, um, most accusatory uh, base uh, instincts um, out there. And so I think that's why Candace Taylor has a small but loyal following. Um, that's why Donald Trump has a large but loyal following. Um, and I think the Republican Party is really going to have to sort itself out. Um, after this election, there's going to need to be some significant soul searching happening, because even if Brian Kemp, Kemp does get through his primary, um, with or without a runoff, there is this piece of the party that is very loud, mm-hmm. vocal, um, strong, and in some cases uh, are electing members to Congress and are having you know a significant say about the direction of the party and the state. And so, you know, will Brian Kemp be the last of his kind who can get a statewide um, approval without getting in the mud like that? I'm not sure. We'll have to see where they go after this. Uh, by the way, one of the points that Marjorie Taylor Greene made in her debate yesterday was that when, uh, if Republicans take control of Congress, uh, uh, the House, uh, she expects to get some top committee assignments. She says that Kevin McCarthy has already promised them to her. So that just reinforces some of what you're saying about the right wing of the party and its place now uh, within the overall party. Andra, I want to play a soundbite from the 10th District Republican debate. Because I think it tells us so much about where we stand right now in much of our politics. This is Mike Collins, uh, could be, you know, the leading candidate in that race. He certainly has been positioning himself against Vernon Jones. Let's listen to one of the things he said. And then I want you all to comment on it, starting with you, Andra. So if you are looking for someone that is truly pro-Trump, an America first agenda candidate, someone that'll stand up not only to the lunatic left over there, but to the rhinos, the elites and the establishment in our own party. I need your help because you see the time for compromise, the time for bipartisanship, that's over with. Andra, the time for bipartisanship is over with. That, too, is a startling comment. It, it was startling. And as I was watching uh, this debate, I was thinking about how I could use that in my class to talk about things. And so what I heard was, uh, you know, Alan Abramowitz sort of rendering of negative partisanship here. Um, uh. And so it's this idea that the other folks are othered and that they that you can't you can't work with them. You can't deal with them like that's the extension of, of, of negative partisanship going on there. It was, it was I mean, that was definitely stark. Um, you know, I think in some ways that was a bar because if I recall, it was him who was going back and forth all the time with Vernon Jones 
Um, you know, basically trying to say Vernon Jones is, you know, a Democrat who's just being an opportunist and kind of coming over here to our side. So he was attempting to discredit him through um, that debate as well. But yes, I mean, I think it does reflect where we are in our polarization today. People think that compromise is a dirty word. Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks that getting 80 percent of what she wants in, in a bill as opposed to 100 percent is grounds to vote against the bill, even if it hurts her constituents. And that came up during the 14th district debate. Mm -hmm. So I think we are sort of at a, a, at a place where we think it is okay to elect inflexible people who will cut off their nose to spite their face. Uh, I, Alan, you are the author. Oh, go ahead, Kurt. Go ahead. Oh, Kurt. finally, Kurt, let Kurt go first. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. No, no, I wanted to, I wanted to, to, to connect with what uh, Andre said just a moment ago. You know, you know, Bill, you know, there's something happening here in the Republican Party. There's, a, there's an emerging split. I think if there's one thing that we can tell from the recently released uh, uh, text messages around the January 6th commission and uh, to, to be continued, right, because they, those things seem to be flowing out on a daily basis. But what I think is reflecting is that there's, a, there's an emerging and perhaps already existed major chasm in the Republican Party. And as long as that split exists, if we are correct and that split exists, it's going to manifest itself in more intense, more intense forms of these types of uh, 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 um, tendencies, right? Uh, on the one hand, this demonizing of the entire other party. You, have two, you only have two major parties in the American body politics. And you have one party which has decided that not only is it that the other party is its opponent, but that other party is illegitimate and open to all types of the most vile types of, uh, of, uh, of conspiracies that one could think of. Who would have ever, ever imagined that it would become a typical part of one party's, I don't want to even use the word platform because it's actually occurring in the absence of a serious platform, but would take a national and then by extension, uh, state and local uh, a tone of questioning whether or not the opposing party and particularly as party leader is a pedophile. This is where we are right now. Now, I would uh, argue Alan, that you... the only way, mm -hmm. the only way, real, last quick point, the only way that we get to what I heard Patricia make, which is a key point that this has to change at some point, and don't let me put words in your mouth, Patricia, um, but something has to, there must be some kind of reckoning is for there to be some bridge to be built between these parties to agree to some kind of approach forward that would be what we call bipartisanship, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to see if that's going to unfold in, in the near future. I'm sorry, Alan. No, no, no problem. I agree with everything you just said. Uh, and and uh, I think it's important to keep in mind when we talk about this growing divide and, and about growing polarization, uh, that while we see it on in both parties, that it's, it's really asymmetrical in that the Republican Party has, both in Georgia and nationally really, has moved much further to the right than the Democratic Party has moved to the left. There are certainly voices on the far left within the Democratic Party. They don't have that sort, the sort of influence and visibility and clout within the Democratic Party that the far right has within the Republican Party today and has had for a while. You know, there's a reason why uh, Donald Trump chose Mark Meadows as his chief of staff. Mark Meadows came right mm. out of the Freedom Caucus, uh, mm. the far right wing of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. But those were Trump's most trustworthy allies. Those are the people he knew would stand with him uh, through thick and thin and through impeachment struggles. Um, and we're seeing that continue now. 
uh, and this delegitimization of the opposition party, this delegitimization of elections is a very dangerous thing. Um, but again, it's happening on one side, uh, and that's largely because I think of two things that are going on that are different when we compare the two parties. One is that the uh, rank and file are being led in that direction by party leaders uh, who are making these sorts of arguments, specifically Donald Trump, of course. Uh, we don't have anything, no one like that on the Democratic side who is making these sort of arguments about conspiracy theories. Um, and the other is the influence of Fox News. Um, there's nothing like that on the left, and we should not, we cannot underestimate, uh, we should not underestimate the significance of that. The New York Times has just done this, this um, uh, uh, series on, on the rise of Tucker Carlson and his influence uh, both within Fox News and, and on, uh, on, on the audience of, of Fox News. Tucker Carlson is the most watched uh, uh, political commentator on television today. That's a scary thing if you look at the messaging that's coming from him. Uh, and there's nothing like that on the left. There's no one who has that kind of influence on the left who is making those kinds of, of, of arguments. So it's asymmetrical, even though uh, certainly we're seeing a pulling apart in both directions. Patricia? Yeah, I think for Democrats, their own divisions are being a little bit papered over right now by the fact that they have these two longtime leaders at the head of the party with Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. Um, they are both to be off the scene relatively soon um, by just by dint of their age. I think we will see that very, a similar split within the Democrats really erupt over the direction of that party as well and the future of that moderate middle um, for Democrats and Republicans. And what I've been struck by Republicans um, this cycle is that with somebody like Mike Collins, whose own father was in Congress, um, the fight is not just with Democrats. It's not just the Democrats who are the other. It's the re moderate Republicans who are not even moderate. Like, Brian Kemp is not moderate, <laughs> but they have made people who don't support Donald Trump the enemy. It's They are also the enemy. They are also the people that they are running against. And so it's not just which party are you in? It's have you supported Donald Trump enough to sort of win approval of that that uh, section of the party? And again, we'll see if if Brian Kemp can pull out this primary. That could change the momentum in the state, but we'll see. Um, I Samber Mistaz is frantically waving at me to get a break in, uh, and so I want to do that. I do want to point out as we go to break, by the way, though, that Vernon Jones also raised the specter of the other side being the enemy. One of his arguments yesterday was, I'm going to impeach Joe Biden if I'm elected uh, to the 10th district. We've got to pause for a moment. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Kurt Young, Alan Abramowitz, Andre Gillespie, Patricia Murphy, join me for Political Rewind today. I just want to say very briefly before we move forward and kind of uh, in, in uh, uh, the context of the discussion we were having before the break, you know, David Ralston was on the show on Friday, and I thought Ralston went further than he has before in talking about Donald Trump in quite negative terms 
Um, and in fact, uh, later uh, we learned from his office that he would have been interested in continuing to talk more about his concerns about the influence Trump is having on certainly on the Georgia Republican Party and beyond. And I think that's a fascinating uh, uh, aspect of where the speaker's at right now. And Andra, with that in mind, let's talk a, a little more about the Trump influence, just briefly about this Ohio primary coming up tomorrow. This is a huge test, as Alan referred to earlier, of Donald Trump's influence, where he has endorsed J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy. Um, and at the same time, you've got Ted Cruz up there, campaigning on behalf of the uh, the other major candidate, one of the other two, Josh Mandel. If Trump doesn't win this, what does it mean about his influence in the weeks and months ahead? Well, I mean, I think that there's always going to be a discussion. I think we're going to have it for years about whether or not the emperor had any clothes on to begin with. And so I'm going to think mm -hmm. about this in the context of uh, sort of the aggregate. So I'm not concerned about one-off here. If like there's any chance for Trump to have a one-off effect, it's probably in Ohio because J.D. Vance, the never-Trumper, was pretty much plucked from obscurity and kind of given the patina of having the Trump endorsement at a time when he needed it. And so it does on the surface look like Trump has an effect there. And I, I probably like won't challenge that. But in general, it, like we may find, and again, this is an, an empirical question that we have to, to test later, Right. He doesn't necessarily have the same type of impact. So one of the questions that we would think about if we were putting this in a model is, you know, is it that Trump's effect works in certain kinds of contests versus not open seat versus incumbent races? Right. If it does it work for novice candidates versus those who are already politically established mm -hmm. before Trump. Right. The things that may be helping Vance out here is that he's a novice candidate who uh, mm -hmm. needed to kind of clean up his advance wins with Trump's support, that doesn't mean that that actually travels well into other contexts. Um, we lost just a little bit of your comments. I'm sorry to say, Andrew, but but I, I, I got the gist of them. Alan, weigh in on this Ohio primary and how mm -hmm. important it is for Trump to get J.D. Vance across the finish line. His endorsement right. did seem to bump Vance up in the numbers it, a bit. It did. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think Trump has made endorsements in a lot of races around the country. And he's made endorsements in down-ballot races here in Georgia, too. Which, and in some way, I think the, the, in the Secretary of State's race, that, that could be a, a more pure test of Trump's influence than in the governor's race, where he's going up against an incumbent who's pretty popular with Republican voters. So I think that's a, that's a tough one. Ohio, yes, his endorsement of J.D. Vance, I think, will be interesting. In Pennsylvania later, uh, you know, with uh, Dr. Oz. Uh, the interesting thing in Ohio is Trump. Trump can't even seem to remember the name of the candidate that he endorsed. So yeah, yesterday, right. he put, made a statement in which he referred to J.D. JD Vance as uh, J.D. He referred to J.D. Mandel, I think, confusing him with yeah. the other uh, <laughs> leading candidate there, Josh Mandel, who was also was vying very, very, uh, you know, vying very strongly for the Trump endorsement uh, uh, and who is running as a, a very much an ally of Donald Trump. So, you know, if J.D. Vance loses to Josh Mandel, yes, I mean, that would be an endorsement that failed. But on the other hand, if Josh Mandel is the nominee, he's just as much of a Trumper as, as uh, every bit the Trumper that J.D. Vance. In fact, for a longer time, J.D. Vance is a sort of Johnny, J.D. come lately, you might say, to the, to the to Trump, Trump world. But I have to, you know, I'm just thinking about what is the future here? Uh, what's going to happen if Republicans take 
control of Congress, at least the House of Representatives, which looks pretty likely. You know, mm. what, what, how are they going to govern you know, with this collection of uh, crazies uh, in, in their caucus? Uh, and and uh, with Kevin McCarthy as, as the Speaker uh, of the House. And, and I hope we get a chance to talk about this, because I think that in some ways, in some ways, having a Republican-controlled Congress, or at least a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, could be the best thing that could possibly happen to Joe Biden when it comes to his chances of being reelected in 2024. So I see, these, I see 2022 not really as a uh, uh, measure of Trump's um, influence, but as a measure of his judgment and the team around him. I think that he is making these really, a lot of, a lot of cases, emotional, um, fact-free, really stupid endorsements, just out of pure knee-jerk reaction. Um, when he was in the White House, he had more of a team around him. He had a full political team. They couldn't override his Override his judgment in all cases. Um, but at this point, he is really in Mar-a-Lago, as far as we know, and just sending out tweets. I mean, these candidates in Georgia didn't know it was coming until it happened um, in many cases. Uh, in other cases, he recruited people just out of pure spite. And so um, this has uh, – his endorsement has always been of questionable influence. He endorsed Roy Moore over in Alabama, and the Democrat won that Senate seat. Um, it, served the, it served the purpose of – having Roy Moore win the primary because Trump was in it, but then lose the general election because he himself was also a terribly damaged candidate. So um, I think that this continues to show this, the slate that he has picked in Georgia continues to show he doesn't have an operation around him and doesn't have the judgment to be making these informed decisions. Um, but Patricia, before we hand it off, I want to get Kurt in here, but before I do, I think what Alan just said about a Republican-controlled House is interesting. You certainly were up there and saw what happens when when the, a group of conservative Republicans, the House Freedom Caucus, creates nothing but trouble for the speaker for two speakers of the House in a row. And I think uh, if McCarthy is successful in becoming speaker, uh, he's already had people like Marjorie Taylor Greene mm. warn him about how he had better toe the line on right-wing credentials. Uh, so you have an experience that uh, w will probably play into what could happen in the fall. Well, if McCarthy wins the speakership, <clears throat> he is the most purely political animal I've ever seen. And he will read his caucus to understand how he will continue his speakership. And so if his caucus continues to be so uh, controlled by Donald Trump, that's the direction that Kevin McCarthy is going to go in. So I think we can expect a Trump-infused Republican um, majority, particularly with the 2024 elections on the horizon. And Donald Trump has made very well known that he would like that he is planning to run uh, for reelection. And so I think that um, I do think that that would be a great development for Democrats. I think that that is why Democrats won in Georgia in the first place is because Donald Trump was so involved in the process. And so um, I think Democrats would like to have a foil to run against other than inflation. They would really love to have Donald Trump back on the scene to give voters the option. Do you really want to go back this direction again? Kurt? You know, there's something interesting that I'm hearing. Um, when you listen to Josh Mandel and his response to what seems to be a surprise report by, uh, of J.D. Vance, um, you don't hear him and other candidates for that matter 
in a sense, turn their fire on Trump, although there is a debate within the party. What are they doing? They are, although they don't have the endorsement, they are still speaking to Trump, and they're still trying to find ways to express their bona fides as it relates to Trump. Now, why is that the case? Why are they still trying to find some kind of relationship with, 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 with uh, uh, Trump as the election goes forward? It is because it's not only there's a lot of talk about Trump as a cult of personality. That, 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 that's a powerful point. But, but where does that register? That becomes a, a prominent point in terms of the, the Trump voter, not necessarily the Trump candidate, the Trump voter. And as long as that perception is there, that the Trump voter will remain active and remain a powerful political force in the upcoming election, then you're going to find the continued uh, looming power of Trump himself in uh, 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 party politics. I think there's one thing that can change that, and that might be, and this is just something that's uh, speculation, but that might be an indictment of Trump and and something that plays out in the legal process that that changes the the landscape altogether. But I don't know that the the endorsement by itself is enough to uh, indicate what's going to happen in the upcoming elections. Well, your talk about a possible indictment of Trump is where we're going to go in just a minute when we talk about another very big story today, the impaneling of the special grand jury by Fonnie Willis. Uh, but before we get there and before we have to take a break again, Andra, I, I can't help it. It's sort of I was really intrigued when you talked about your, the way you look at data for what Trump's power can be moving forward, how you're going to crunch it. And I do think do, do you think it's possible that We're going to get to the end of 2022, and if things don't go the way Trump hopes they will, it'll kind of burst that boil that the Republican Party that has been festering, that it could be a turning point, and that Trump's uh, importance moving forward into 23 and beyond will be diminished. Um, well, I don't think Trumpism is going away. I mean, I think a lot of the sort of ideals, uh, the the stances, the playing towards the cultural wars, the, you know, some of the things that we don't think about that often with Trumpism, like deregulation, I think those things are here to stay with us for the foreseeable future. Um, where I think it could happen is that, and I would be very curious to talk to Speaker Ralston on May 25th, if Brad Raffensperger yeah. and if uh, Brian Kemp win their races, uh, right. I think that what you heard Speaker Walston say on Friday might actually kind of be a little bit more voluble and a lot louder um, at that time where, where some people will still be willing to stand up. So while, you know, I, I, I think that the fever may start to break, I don't think you'd actually get to the point where the Republican Party would be in a cold sweat and really kind of over um, the fever sort of, you know, at, at the end of this year, if Donald Trump, actually, if Donald Trump's candidates end up losing. I think there's still a ways to go before the Republican Party sort of is, you know, in their 2.0 phase. Ellen, quick comment. Got to get to a break. But you first. I, I want to go, go back to what Kurt said. I think what it really comes down to in terms of Trump's influence on the Republican Party is the Republican base. It comes down to the attitudes of rank-and-file Republican voters. Um, and until they turn away from Trump, I don't think you're going to see the, the party's candidates and leaders really turn away from Trump, regardless of what happens in these primaries. And what we're uh, seeing right now okay. is that among the rank-and-file, Trump is still very popular, not quite as popular as he was perhaps you know, a year or two ago, but he still has a lot of support there. And, and that's the key to his continuing influence on the Republican Party. Okay, let's take our final break of the show and be back with more. 
Patricia Murphy, even as a New York grand jury that was impaneled late last year to hear evidence against Donald Trump and possible corruption uh, was uh, disbanded without any uh, action whatsoever, Fonnie Willis today starts to select members of her special grand jury to investigate whether Donald Trump, others like, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, well, I'm, I'm blocking the names of people who might be in her uh, I, I, sites. You'll tell me. She's going to begin this process that could take a year. She's got a year with this uh, special grand jury. What's the importance of it? So I think it's hugely important. It's very distinct from what was happening in New York because that had, the New York case had to do with Donald Trump's business contacts and business conduct. This has to do right. with um, directly with election interference here in Georgia and um, Donald Trump's uh, effort in the January phone call with Brad Raffensperger and calling uh, Raffensperger to tell him, look, I need 11,000 votes. You know, I have 11,000 votes. Go out there and I just need to find 11,000 votes. And he, of course, meant to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Um, the fact that it happened in um, in a recorded phone call means that it is now public, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen and that it wasn't illegal <laughs> just because we all know about it. But she is um, uh, has conducted a, a lengthy investigation to get to this point to have a special grand jury and paneled, and it will be looking at Donald Trump, his associates, and other members of the Republican Party who may have worked with Donald Trump in an attempt to overturn that Georgia election. She'll have them, again, the, the special grand jury, for um, at least probably the next year, certainly after the 2022 elections, when we'll hear any results. Yeah, um, let me, Kurt, say that uh, in my senior moment, I wasn't thinking about the fact that David Schaefer could be on her radar, the chair of the Georgia Republican Party, because he impaneled a fake slate of Trump electors. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Lindsey Graham uh, could be on in her sights because of a call he made to Raffensperger's office about the election. So this could go beyond Trump, Kurt. Absolutely. You know, it, it, it's very interesting to see. We've been saying this uh, over and over on this show, Bill, uh, the extent to which the, the races in Georgia and the political issues in the state of Georgia become nationalized, right? And Georgia becomes the epicenter, uh, not just of the political realities, but also of these uh, legal realities that uh, are gripping the country. Um, but, you know, Bill, something else that's happening with Fannie Willis that I think is important to mention, and that is uh, Part, again, of the current political climate is the elevating of black women at a position of leadership uh, throughout the country. And Mm -hmm. maybe without her even asking for it, uh, and with the decision, so it seems, in New York uh, to move away from indicting uh, indicting, uh, um, Trump uh, coming out of Alvin Bragg's office, it is now thrust of uh, uh, the newest um, grand jury uh, to the national spotlight again. And so whatever plays out, I think we have, in addition to our electing, <clears throat> uh, our least election of the first African-American uh, woman uh, uh, to be to, uh, to seated on the, on the high court, you're seeing again the important focus on women, uh, black women in these kinds of discussions taking place now. Andra? You know, I think one of the things that's really interesting here is that the financial crimes might have been harder to prove um, and that, you know, if this were another financial crimes case, it might actually look like a fool's errand. But because this one is elections related in an area where Trump is less conversant because he just didn't have enough experience and where there's videotaped evidence that everybody has heard, 
that looks pretty damning from uh, the outside, this is a different case. So, you know, I know that the Trump wing is going to call this a witch hunt, but it's just like, yeah, but none of the, like the circumstances and the facts around this case touch on a topic that is totally different from this. And unfortunately, right, we got you on tape saying so. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so I think that, that this is, 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 is interesting. It's also interesting that when we talk about this from a federalist standpoint, we see the January 6th committee is, you know, gearing up, they're going to have hearings next month. Um, but you know, if this is prolonged, we can expect that if Republicans take over the house of representatives, that whatever isn't done is going to get shut down in the 118th Congress. Um, but here you have state local government that's like, actually, we have purview over this one particular thing, an election in our state uh, and a phone call that was made into Fulton County. And so therefore, we're going to exercise that right to, um, you know, exert some accountability and demand it in this particular area. I think it is a great lesson for all of us. Uh, Alan, last word before we're out of time. I absolutely agree with what Andre just said, that the significance of this is in the fact that it will continue uh, uh, into 2023, beyond the 2022 midterm elections, regardless of which party controls the House, regardless of what happens to the um, House committee investigation, which the Republicans almost certainly would would shut down. Will Trump actually ultimately be held accountable for his behavior, for his actions? I, I don't know. I'm still pretty skeptical uh, about that, but at least at least it means there's a chance of that happening. Yeah, I, I do think I want to clarify, because you all have done a good job of it, actually. Uh, certainly the New York grand jury is a whole different matter. But what many people are saying, Patricia, is that the Fonnie Willis case is really the last opportunity that people who really want to see Trump held accountable for some sins that he may have committed. It's Fonnie Willis who's got the ball finally in her court, right? Well, the last that we know of. <laughs> I think there there will continue to be instances of Donald Trump and questionable legalities. Um, But yes, and Bonnie Willis is extremely meticulous. Her language is very reserved. She would not be doing this, I don't think, if she felt like um, these circumstances were there. And she said, I have to go after cases no matter who has committed the potential crime. All right. We are completely out of time. Can I please have at least another hour with this panel? (laughs) I wish I could. What a great way to start uh, the week. Patricia Murphy, Andra Gillespie, Kurt Young, uh, Ellen Abramowitz, thank you so much for a smart, really fascinating conversation. We're out of time for uh, today's show. We'll be back, of course, uh, tomorrow with another Political Rewind. In the meantime, uh, my thanks to uh, Jesse Neiswanger, to Natalie Mendenhall, and to Sam Burmistaus for the work you are doing behind the scenes to make Political Rewind the show it is. I'll see you all tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.